Good morning. Our scripture today is found in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the word of the Lord. One could be forgiven for concluding that we live in an anti-authoritarian age. Systems are evil. Structures are suspect. If, if someone in a position of authority does something we don't like, off with their head. So children resist the authority of parents. Students resist the authority of teachers. Citizens resist the authority of law enforcement. All that to say, question authority didn't die in the 60s. It just didn't. It's very much the spirit of our age. The spirit of every age. But that's also half the story, friends. Because I think if you look a little deeper, it doesn't take long to realize that our, our problem isn't so much with authority in a categorical sense, but authority in an external sense. Listen, the, the reason we take issue with every form of external authority is because we are ruthlessly committed to our own. Okay, think about this. The, the strength of our opposition to other people is the measure of our infatuation with ourselves. We're, we're not actually against authority at all. We love it. We've simply shifted the center of authority 
from or the locus of authority from something that is outside of ourselves to something within ourselves. Make sense? We've individualized authority such that, that each one of us has become a God unto ourselves, which means I'm accountable to no one other than me. Here's the ultimate problem with that approach to life, okay? It puts us on a collision course with the one true God. The the creator and redeemer of heaven and earth. What did we read earlier in Isaiah 43, verse 10? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And there's not an asterisk there with a picture of your name or my name on it. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Now, from a human perspective, Jesus' arrest in this chapter suggests his authority is not supreme. But John takes great pains, friends, during Jesus' final hours to to show us that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is in complete control, but both of his own destiny and the actions of his enemies the entire time. He's not a a helpless sacrifice or a, a powerless victim. He's a willing sacrifice. We sang about that earlier. And therein lies the wonder of the gospel, the good news of our salvation. I I want you to think about, I think this is helpful, this first part of John 18 as a sandwich. At risk of making some of you hungry, think about this passage like a sandwich, okay? So on both sides, the two pieces of bread, people are resisting Jesus' authority. All right? His first opponent is Judas and his followers. His second opponent is Peter, one of his closest disciples. But the main point, what's the best part of a sandwich, folks? The meat in the middle, right? The main point, the meat in the middle, is found in the middle of this passage where Jesus demonstrates the supremacy of his authority. And the question this whole text confronts us with is this, not not does Jesus Christ have authority, but how are we going to respond to that authority? That's that's the issue here. Not does he have it. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, but how are we going to respond? And listen, it's the way Jesus exercises his authority, what he does with his authority, that actually makes our right response to his authority possible. And our response to his authority should be informed by several realities. Here's the first one, verses 1 to 4. All sin is a rejection of Jesus' authority. It's what it is. As this chapter opens, Jesus has just finished praying for, for the present and future people of God. It's a long prayer, it's a whole chapter. <laughs> We spent a lot of time there. And and all the requests he makes in that long prayer kind of come to a head in chapter 17, verse 26, 
where, where Jesus reveals that, that he wants us, when all said and done, to have two really important things. The gift of God's presence and the joy of becoming more like him in every area of life. That's what he wants for us. But both of those blessings require something. They require Jesus to demonstrate the saving power of God by walking the way of the cross. Because unless he dies the death we deserve to die on account of our disobedience, friend, there there can be no fellowship with the Holy God. Only a fearful expectation of judgment. So look at verse 1, chapter 18. So Jesus, walking away the cross, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Now the fact that the way of the cross passes through the way of a garden is not an accident. That's loaded with symbolism. A garden was where everything in our world went wrong in the first place. Genesis 3, where the first man and woman resisted, opposed, shook their fist at the authority of God. And so Jesus is returning to where it all began to make a way for everything to be made right again. That's what he's doing. The garden isn't a random place. It's, it's a divinely appointed place. It reminds us that the Lord has not forgotten what took place back in Eden. And it's also a place that Judas was well aware of and could readily find Jesus. Because for three years, that man, Judas, he appeared to be one of Jesus' disciples. But, but in chapter 13, he, he reveals his true colors and he, he goes out into the night to betray the Lord. And the testimony of his life, friend, it, it's a really sober warning. Okay? It, and the warning is this. Do not presume upon your spiritual privileges. Don't presume upon your spiritual privileges. What what do I mean by that? Well, Judas had seen it all, right? All of that. He'd seen all the supernatural miracles, all the matchless instruction. He he ran with the Christian crowd. He, He was even in a position of leadership in their midst. He was in charge of the money. And yet, his heart was far from God. What's the warning? That nearness to the things of God is a fatal substitute for a heart that is devoted to God. Don't make that mistake. Heed the warning of his life, friend. Tend tend well to the condition of your soul. Judas had every reason to remain loyal to Jesus. I mean, Jesus created Judas. He cared for Judas. He, he even washed Judas's feet. 
And Judas responded to Jesus' loving authority by by turning his back on the Lord. And so a garden of fellowship where Jesus, verse 2, often met with his disciples, once again became a garden of betrayal. You, You realize, I hope, that every time we, man, shows up in the garden, we don't do very well. (laughs) For there Judas met the Lord, verse 3, look there, with a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees and a collection of lanterns and torches and weapons. I linger there, friend, because in in a critical sense, whenever we sin, we're acting like Judas. Okay, we're, sin is not just breaking God's law or disobeying God's rules or doing wrong things. You know, oh, yeah, well, I guess I went 79 and a 65. Sorry about that. No, sin is always personal. It's, it's always relational. All sin is an act of spiritual disloyalty to the God who created us and redeems us for his glory. There's always a vertical element involved. Sin is not just a, we all make mistakes living in this life kind of thing. It's a God thing. So when I'm impatient with my kids, because I get that way, <laughs> What am I saying to God? What's the vertical thing going on here? God, you are not working all things together for my good. And I could do a much better job running the universe right now than you are. That's what I'm saying to God, right? When When I become bitterly angry over a perceived insult, what's going on with me and God? What's, what's the sin in this direction? What am I saying to God? I'm not willing to trust you to vindicate me. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Or, or when I look lustfully at another woman, what am I saying to God? I refuse to wait for you to satisfy my soul. I will not honor you with my body. I will please myself. There's, there's always, even when we do wrong things to other people, there's always something wrong going on in our heart, the way we're relating toward God. Instead of submitting to God's will, we, we attempt to impose our own. Instead of submitting to God's authority, we, we assert our own. If, if you want a definition of sin, that's what sin is. It's a willful rejection of Jesus' authority. Which is why Jesus asked the same question in verse 4 and verse 7. What does he say? Whom do you seek? Think about that. I mean, on one level, you just go too far and say, well, well, duh, they're looking for you. (laughs) Why are we asking this? Friend, he's asking because there is a who at the heart of every wrong thing we do and every right thing we fail to do. We're shaking our fist at God 
As King David says in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you think of sin that way, friend? It's a good question. Do you, do you think of it as an act of spiritual disloyalty, as, as betraying God? Or, or do you kind of minimize it by just limiting your attention to the, the human consequences or fallout? You, you realize apart from God's saving intervention in our life, our sin, our, our disloyalty to God, that defines us. That's our identity, no less than it was for Judas. It's it's who we are. We are disloyal to the God who created us as those who reject his authority. And yet even in saying that and looking at what Judas and his followers are doing, there's a a deep irony here. Because if, if you've been following, reading, studying John's gospel up to this point, knowing all we do, there's a something very ironic about the way Judas thinks that lanterns and torches and weapons can take down the Son of God. Right? It's a, it's a picture of the futility of sin. The fact that when we do shake our fist at God, we can't win. <laughs> It's futile. And it's a futility, a futile human opposition that Jesus swiftly exposes. All sin, all our sin is a rejection of Jesus' authority. That's the first thing we need to see. Here's the second. Men cannot prevail against Jesus' authority. (laughs) All sin... It's a rejection of Jesus' authority and men cannot prevail against Jesus' authority. So, so imagine the scene. Try to picture this in your mind. Judas is standing there in the torchlight. He's surrounded by a, by a gang of armed men, prepared, ready, attempting to inflict their will on the Son of God. And how does Jesus respond? What's he going to do? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He came forward. The contrast between Jesus and Judas here is striking. Okay, so Judas knows the place in verse 2 and forms a group of men to oppose God's authority. Jesus knows all that is about to happen, verse 4, and he steps forward in obedience to God's authority. He's not surprised. His plans aren't derailed or, or delayed. He knows exactly what's happening, why it's happening, and where it's going to lead. Notice, such is always our Lord's relationship to the actions of sinful men. Yours included. Jesus knows he's about to die at their hands, but but he doesn't run. He steps forward. He's not hapless or reluctant. His sacrifice is voluntary and willing. It's fueled by holy love. John 10 verse 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, hear that, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Aren't aren't you grateful, brothers and sisters, that in the face of our sin and all the wickedness that fills this world, Jesus steps forward. He steps forward. When the cosmic powers of evil prepare to do their worst, Jesus steps forward. When oppression and injustice assault the authority of God, Jesus steps forward. As King David did before the Philistine army, so too does God David's greater son. So Christian, if you're, if you're fearful, when, when you feel the weight of your sin, when trouble around you or within you is, is breathing down your neck, remember, Jesus steps forward. He engages in the battle. He, he takes up our cause. He fulfills his mission. He's the king who prevails. He steps forward. And the question he asks here isn't a question for his benefit, okay? Let's get that clear. It's, it's for the benefit of his, his enemies and his watching disciples. And it really is a question that, that gets at the crux of the conflict and the reason why his enemies are ultimately doomed to fail. Look at verse four. What does he say? What does he ask? Whom do you seek? Who is it that you think you are about to arrest? Who who is it that you think you can intimidate with swords and torches? Who is the one you have yearned to destroy for so long? And yet, against whom you could not lift a finger until the appointed time. Friend, when, when you and I sin, when you reject submission to any authority but your own, who are you opposing? Who are you resisting? The, the truthful answer is the same today as it was back then. You are seeking to impose your will on God. That's what sin is. There's a who at the heart of it. Don't don't con yourself into thinking, okay? That your ultimate issue is with that church, or those friends, or those rules, or my stupid parents. Your, Your battle is with the Lord of hosts. That, that's who you're seeking. That, that's who you're opposing. That, that's the authority you're determined to resist and destroy. And Jesus' question forces them and us really to wrestle with a question that lies at both the heart of John's gospel and the heart of the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? <laughs> Who is Jesus? Really? Why? Because the validity of his authority depends entirely on the nature of his identity. That's why it matters. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who you are. Translation, you have no authority over us because you are nothing more than a man like us. 
You were Jesus born there. You got a hometown. You're a man like us. And and the Lord's reply in verse 5, it forcibly confronts them, friends, with the fact that he is Jesus of Nazareth, and yet he is immeasurably more. Measurably more. Jesus said to them, look, verse 5, I am he. Literally, I am. Ego ain't me. Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what's his name? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That man standing in the torchlight was Jesus of Nazareth. He was also the eternal God, clothed in human flesh, and and with two words, Jesus asserted the reality of his humanity and his deity. I am. But that, that was way more than a brilliant answer. That that was a brilliant answer. (laughs) It was a devastating answer. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Let's just clear out some rubble first, okay? They didn't fall to the ground because they were freshly awestruck at the deity of Christ. John John doesn't say the magnitude of what they were trying to do suddenly dawned on them, or that it was a voluntary act of worship. No, actually the fact that they give the same answer to the same question in verse 7 indicates that their attitude toward him hasn't changed a lick. So why did they crumple to the ground? It's because they experienced in their body, friends, something of the weight of God's glory that hit them like a train. And they were completely helpless, physically undone in the face of it. What's the point of that? Friend, God does not need your faith in him or your submission to his word to make himself glorious. He is glorious. He's supreme in power, supreme in majesty, supreme in authority and dominion and honor and beauty. There's a reason, in other words, that when sinners and saints alike in God's word experience his self-revelation, their involuntary response is to fall to the ground speechless over and over and over again. Such is the weight of God's glory. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth, friend, that compares to that. 
Jesus, he doesn't even lift a hand. Do you realize that? He doesn't, he doesn't raise his arm. He, he, do, he doesn't pull out a bigger lantern <laughs> or more torches or a bigger sword, you know? No. He simply speaks. He just speaks. He reveals the glory of his divine nature through two words. And his enemies are just crushed like like a cardboard house before a Category 5 hurricane. And listen, friend, Jesus is still in the exact same business today. Doing what? Revealing the power and glory of his divine identity through words. He's still doing that. When you open your Bible and begin to read, you are not just musing or scanning over men's thoughts about God. You were coming face to face with the weight of God's glory. With the truth of his identity, the, the perfection of his power. Don't miss that. And one of the sweetest lessons of John 18, as we look at this section of God's word, is that, that in the darkest hour of sin, the Lord still reigns. You realize that when, when racism re- rears its ugly head in our world, Jesus reigns. When sexual abuse ravages your family, Jesus reigns. When you keep running to the, the very addictions that you know are going to eventually destroy you over and over again, Jesus still reigns. The, the Lord's relationship to evil, in other words, is not like Star Wars where you've got the force and the dark side and it's kind of, uh, who's going to come out and win? No, all power in heaven and on earth is Jesus Christ, period. And when the cosmic powers of evil begin to do their worst, Jesus begins doing his best work. You see that? It's stunning. He's completely in control. And yet wicked men arrested him. Right? And wicked men are about to crucify him, right? Will wicked people do wicked things to you and me? Yes, absolutely. But listen, let us never conclude that those things are happening because our God has vacated the throne of the universe. To the contrary, he accomplishes his greatest work through the darkest of hours. And so you may not know exactly what God is doing in your life, but you do know this, friend. No matter what happens, Jesus is in control. (sighs) Cling to that promise. Hold fast to that assurance. What's the assurance? What's the promise, Pastor? That God will no more cease to be faithful to his promises today than he was faithful to his promises on that day. Because he had just made a promise to his disciples, arguably minutes, if not just a few hours earlier. John 17, 12, look at verse 8. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, John 17, 12, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is arrested, right? He's suffering, but even during his own suffering, he remains faithful to his word. 
He's, he's protecting his followers from harm and in fulfillment of his word. Brothers and sisters, he will keep doing the exact same thing for you and me. Ezekiel 12 verse 25, for I am the Lord, I will speak the word that I will speak and it will be performed. I can't remember the critter's name in the Mandalorian, but he was a short guy. And you remember at the end of every speech he made, what did he say? I have spoken. What's his name? Anybody remember? Thank you. That's a picture of the power of God's word. And that's what Judas and his followers just refused to acknowledge, right? They, they, they refused to recognize the divine identity of Jesus and the futility of their quest to, to overcome his authority. I mean, what a, he gave him two chances. What, what a picture of the stubborn irrationality of sin. Je, Jesus decks them with two words. And they still refuse to confess that he's the Christ. The son of God. And, and yet, yet the truth remains. The truth remains, men cannot prevail against the authority of Jesus. And so for now they rage, for now they refuse, but neither they nor you will be permitted to refuse forever, friend. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You realize Jesus' enemies falling down to his feet. That was a foretaste of the the end of human history where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, That is where all history is going And Peter should have known that. No less than the rest of Jesus' disciples. Right? I mean, what's what's the most rational, logical thing to do after seeing Jesus' enemies crumble to the ground in response to two words? What's the most rational thing to do? Perhaps trust the saving power of Jesus' words? <laughs> just, just thinking? Or, or trust the authority of his word? And wait for Judas and his followers to do exactly what he just told them to do? And leave us alone? And protect us from getting arrested? Maybe given what we've just seen him do, that would be a logical response. <laughs> But friend, Peter does none of those things because he's he's just like us. He's just like us. Here's the third lesson about Jesus' authority. Point number three. We submit to Jesus' authority by trusting his work, not ours. It's not complicated. All sin is resisting the authority of Jesus. That's the first piece of bread. (laughs) The meat in the middle is what? Man cannot prevail against the authority of Jesus. 
What's the lesson from the second piece of bread? We submit to Jesus' authority by trusting his work, not ours. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. He sizes things up. He determines upon a quick analysis, this situation is not going in a good direction. (laughs) And he tries to fix it himself. He's just seen Jesus knock down the entire group by speaking two words, and yet he thinks it would be smart to contribute a little deliverance of his own. In other words, Peter is more like the armed men with Judas than he realizes. And frankly, he's a lot like us. Because they oppose Jesus by categorically rejecting his authority, right? You're not God. Jesus of Nazareth. You're just a man. Well, Peter opposes Jesus too by functionally denying his authority. He, he reveals just how little he believes Jesus is in control by doing what? By trying to do God's job for him. Same heart, same opposition. We, we do the exact same things, friends. Instead of submitting to Jesus' authority by trusting him and waiting for him to work, we strike out on our own and try to hurry things along, right? So, so when something isn't the way we want it to be at work, why do we assume we need to just put in more hours? If something isn't the way we want it to be or it ought to be with our kids, why do we assume, well, I guess I just need to have longer conversations or, or issue more consequences or, you know, hold the line, crack down. Or if our spouse isn't changing fast enough, why do we start harassing or, or repaying them in kind under the guise of, I'm just trying to get their attention here? Or, or why do we replay painful conversations in our mind? Frantically searching for something we could have said or done that oh, maybe I should have said that or I didn't, to produce a different outcome. But what are we functionally saying in so many of those situations? We're saying, Jesus, you do not have authority here. You're not in control. I am, and I'm going to fix this situation for the better I got to find a way if it's the last thing I do. Friend, doing God's job for him never goes well because we're not God. But listen, Peter's problem and ours runs a lot deeper than just doubting God's power or God's ability to do the necessary work himself. That's a problem, a big problem. But the real problem goes even deeper. The deeper issue is Peter's blindness and ours to the kind of work that is even necessary in the first place. Think about it. What does Peter assume? Whatever it costs, even if I die trying, I have to stop Jesus from being arrested. That's exactly what needs to happen here. So let's start cracking heads. 
He's completely blind to the fact that, that through his arrest and his imminent death, Jesus is about to work the greatest deliverance from sin and death the world has ever seen. So what does the Lord immediately say to Peter in verse 11? Put your sword into its sheath. It's a nice way of saying, stop it. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus rebukes Peter. Why? Because in his effort to fix the situation, he's actually opposing the redemptive purposes and plans of God. In other words, he's not just messing things up by trying to do God's job for him. He's denying God's wisdom and contending against God's will. He's rejecting God's authority. And here lies the sober warning of John 18. Remember this, okay? There are two ways to oppose Jesus' authority. We can do it as sworn enemies, or we can do it as professing followers. Everyone around Jesus, enemies and followers included, they are all resisting his will. (laughs) They're all opposing his authority. The only difference is that Judas and company know it, and Peter doesn't. Because Peter, like us, what do we do? We, we arrogantly think God needs our help or our contribution to get the work done. And then we double down on that arrogance by thinking we know exactly what kind of work actually needs to be done in the first place. And in both cases, friends, our opposition is futile. Why? Because men cannot prevail against the authority of Jesus. Right? So where does that leave us? whether we're enemies or followers. If we're all struggling, tempted to oppose Jesus' authority, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves every one of us in need of a savior. And so here's the good news, friend. Okay, here's the good news. Jesus rescues us from opposing God's authority by freely submitting to the same. That's the gospel. Jesus rescues us from opposing God's authority by doing what? By freely submitting to the Father's authority. When when he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's saying what? Peter, the only path of deliverance, the only one, not just in this situation, but, but every situation is always the path of humble, sacrificial obedience to the will of God. The ultimate reason I came into the world is to drink the cup of wrath that men like Judas and you deserve on account of your opposition to my authority. And I'm going to exercise my divine authority by remaining obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because unless I do, I can't deliver you from slavery to your own authority so you can experience the joy of living in submission to God's authority. But that requires something of you, Peter. You have to stop acting like you're God. Opposing my authority and and choose to submit to my authority. By doing what? By trusting my work, my wisdom, my timing, and my power. And listen, friends. That does not mean, lesson for us, 
Oh, I get it, pastor. The key is to be spiritually passive. <laughs> let go and let God. That's what you're saying. Oh, why did I sit through this whole message to get that? No, that is not what I'm saying. Okay? What I'm saying is we need to stay in our lane as creatures by obeying God's word no matter the cost, and and locating our confidence in every situation in Jesus' authority and Jesus' work, not our authority and our work. That's what I'm saying. It means resting in the power of the gospel to change people's hearts instead of trying, you know, to do it through our own words or our own actions. It means fixing our eyes on the Savior in all situations who drank the cup of the Father's wrath so sin and death would not have the final word, And in every situation, declaring with the prophet Jonah, what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Again and again and again and again. John 18 teaches us that all sin is opposition to Jesus' authority. That men cannot prevail against Jesus' authority. And we submit to Jesus' authority by trusting his work, not ours. And every time we fail, praise God that he is not just our rightful authority. He's also our faithful savior. Because Jesus redeems us, he rescues us from feudal opposition to the father's authority by freely submitting to the same. He he lives the obedient life we cannot live. He dies the death for sin. We deserve to die. And and by that work alone, what happens? We are forgiven and freed from devotion to our authority so we can experience the joy of submitting to God's authority. You'll never win contending with Jesus, friend. You just won't. But then again, why even try? Why, why, why are you still fighting, resisting? The, the authority to which God invites you and commands you to submit is an authority he exercised by laying down his life for you. You realize that? There, there's no better or safer or more lovely or beautiful authority in the entire world than Jesus' authority. So don't oppose him. Embrace him. Close your eyes and listen to Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one whose trust is in you. Jesus, we long for that blessing. The blessing of trusting and resting, submitting to your authority. Thank you for the way you perfectly submitted to God's authority so we could be forgiven and restored every time we fail to follow your example. And I especially pray, Lord, that 
But even as we sang earlier and we'll sing now about the way you reign, that your authority would not be kind of an unfortunate thing that we know is true, but we sort of wish it was not. Would you make us a people who are exceedingly glad that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? And make us exceedingly glad for the fact that ultimately, even in our sin and striving and best attempts to go our own way, we cannot escape the prevailing power of God. Lord, if your authority did not prevail, there could be no salvation. But because your authority does prevail, and it is prevailing and will always prevail, we can say with Jonah, with joy and gladness, salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Amen.